Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday or October the 8th, 2023, a historic weekend, of course. Uh, tragically, another war in the Middle East, uh, and all the leading newspapers are, in a sense, safeguarding history. They're all trying to make sense of what happens. Dramatic counterclaims from one side or the other, New York Times, uh, CNN, uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, London Guardian, uh, even the Financial Times, which... Uh, doesn't tend to dramatize things. We're all in the business of trying to make sense of what's happened. Both sides are claiming stuff that may or may not be true. One man who is in the business of safeguarding history, not necessarily in a journalistic sense, but in terms of separating the real from the fake, is my guest on the show today, Kenneth W. Rendell. is a longtime uh, collector of authentic uh, artifacts from history, and he has a new book out, his biography, Safeguarding History, Trailblazing Adventures Inside the Worlds of Collecting and Forging History. And he is joining us from his home just west of Boston. Uh, Ken, uh, welcome. Congratulations on the new book. Why is it important, Ken, in your view, to safeguard history? What, 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 what's the big deal of separating the authentic from the fake? Well, I think the importance of history is what you learn from it. And then what you learn, you can apply to today. And that's why it's very important to know what really happened, what people's intentions really were. Um, and it, and in particular on a day like today, when, as you noted, you have all different variations of what's just happened in the Middle East. And one thing you know, if you really look into the propaganda of war, is you have to be very careful what you believe uh, and what you actually know yourself, because people are faking history. Um, and it's happened just with things like the Hitler diaries, Jack the Ripper diary. Uh, those were done uh, not for idealistic reasons, but to make money. And history needs to be protected. You need to be able to make decisions uh, based on reality. So in a sense, your life has been uh, pursued in the, in the business of, to borrow your language, protecting history. How did you begin this unusual endeavor? How, have you always been interested in separating the fake from the authentic? Uh, I would say that didn't really become a big factor until probably the mid-1960s when I started dealing in historical letters and documents. And people warned me about forgeries. These were forged letters of George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, um, and they were created purely uh, for the money, not to change history. But prior to that, I was mostly involved with rare coins, and the sense of the people who handled the coins originally. And as far as I knew at that time, uh, and I qualify it that way, people were not faking coins or, or um, they could disagree over grading, which had a lot to do with what they were worth. 
but there weren't hoaxes happening. Why do, are people willing to pay large amounts of money for relics from history, Ken? What, 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 where is the, the economic reason there? They don't really have any, certainly any utilitarian value. Well, what they have is an emotional value. And people either feel that uh, holding a letter um, that someone wrote or um, Napoleon's compass that he used throughout his campaigns. Uh, Objects like that either transmit a feeling, take somebody back to that period of time, uh, give them a sense that they're sitting beside them when their their pen is taking their thoughts from their mind onto paper, and also learning a lot about people uh, that they would write in letters but don't end up in books unless the author has um, a, a connection with the person who has the letters. So I, I think there's a lot of reassurement that people were really um, who people hoped that they were, that they had empathy, that they had caring, that they were smart, they were clever, um, that they saw hoaxes, they saw the realities uh, from the job that they had. And um, I think it gives people a, a really good connection with people and places and time periods that they're interested in. And that translates into what it's worth, what it takes to own something. How do you determine value? I mean, you're in the business of determining the value of um, historical letters in all fields, documents of one kind or another. Is this market driven? Is this determined by what people are willing to pay? Yes, it, it is almost, from my standpoint, almost totally market driven. Um, I have done a lot of major appraisal cases that have been litigated in tax court or um, in in regular court. Uh, and I'm dri- very driven by there being a market there uh, and that you show that um, you have reason to believe that people will pay a certain price. But as far as the, just the business, um, it's how rare something is, but it's very important uh, as to how desirable it is. Because something's rare does not make it desire, does not make it valuable. Um, and also how the content of a letter. Um, I, we had a, an Abraham Lincoln letter, 18 pages long, explaining why he was fighting the Civil War and that the Civil War had to be won for the nation to survive. It was very detailed, very important letter. Um, and the person who bought it was absolutely thrilled. Uh, they were interested in that period of time. And the, there is no letter that um, gave the sense of, of Lincoln as the person and as the politician. Do you think these things should be privately owned? Something like a, a letter from Lincoln, perhaps the greatest of all American politicians, certainly a, a remarkable figure in history, should be put in museums rather than in private collections? There, There is an awful lot in museums that is never displayed. Um, people, it's very difficult for uh, people to find out where things are and, and 
Uh, you could make the argument that archives and museums so frequently are underfunded that they really can't do a good job. Too much is never seen. When private people own them, they tend to loan for exhibitions to make a big deal out of them, uh, to publicize them. There are almost no collections where people just have things kind of squirreled away and no one knows they have them. Most people want to share them uh, for the same reasons that they wanted to acquire it. I was looking at your website, Ken, before we did this interview, and I was intrigued by the fact that you're showing off, so to speak, uh, the original manuscript of Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, uh, one of the the great manuscripts, I guess, of the cult of the free market, very influential book, and as well as some 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 ideas and work of, of Reagan himself. Are you yourself a disciple of the the cult of the free market, or is it just coincidental that you are selling the work of, of Rand and Reagan? No, I like both of those collections particularly, and I'd be rather sad if they sell. Um, I mean, I'm in business <laughs> to do that. Um, but I grew up in what I considered a normal world. And in the dedication in my book, uh, I de my last line of dedication was to the America I grew up in, where it was a meritocracy, where knowledge and hard work were what mattered. And I wrote this in the past tense because I think that's changed. Um, and I think that's... Um, that's a real loss. And I think that what Ayn Rand wrote long ago has been happening. People withdrawing in the medical world, retiring early, because the regulation is such that uh, they can't really practice medicine, uh, which is what they set out to do. Uh, and the acceptance of things that don't work, uh, the acceptance of companies being bailed out, um, because they made foolish mistakes. Ordinary people aren't bailed out uh, in the same way. But then again, we have a whole society that um, isn't based on necessarily on having to perform, that, that it's okay. Um, and so I would say that um, certainly I have a, a, uh, an affinity uh, for Ayn Rand and Atlas Shrugged. And as far as Reagan is concerned, I think that um, if he were running today, I think both parties would have, I hope, embrace him. Um, I mean, what he said in his inaugural address as governor of California was what everybody wishes we had today, um, a, a welfare system that really helps people in need, but that understands that you cripple people by just giving them things and they're not having any sense of self-esteem and self-respect. Uh, so I, I do think in my lifetime, I hate to sound like an old guy saying all this, but the country really and the world really is a mess. Well, I'm not sure you sound like an old guy. You sound like an old conservative guy. Not all old people would necessarily agree with you. I'm rather old myself and I, I'm not sure I share your, your opinion of the past. I mean, there are many Americans who would argue that the America you idealize was deeply racist and sexist and so on and so forth. Do you, in, in terms of your selection of 
of, of materials that you collect and resell, does that reflect your own particular sort of intellectual or ideological interests? I mean, do you sell, for example, the work of a Malcolm X or a Martin Luther King? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I don't mix it at all. You had asked about two specific things. And I want to get, not leave the, the wrong impression here. Um, I was talking about the Atlas Shrugged aspect of, of life. Mm. Um, I was not talking about what it was like from a black perspective, or most importantly, just from a woman's perspective. Um, my wife has quite a different view. Um, she's my age. She grew up uh, in the television world. Uh, as a, a, a television reporter, um, she got paid half of what men got paid. Uh, there weren't the opportunities, and she struggled through all of that. So um, I, I don't want to leave the – I grew up in a really poor situation. I had my own struggles and problems to deal with. Um, so I wasn't particularly aware of what went on um, in other areas. I knew what went on when you were poor. I'm speaking with Kenneth Rendell, uh, one of the, the men who safeguards history. And he has a new book out, Safeguarding History, Trailblazing Adventures Inside the Worlds of Collecting and Forging History. Uh, Ken, you've been involved in a number of these big controversies. You, you mentioned the Hitler Diaries, Jack the Ripper, International Museum of World War II. If you had to pick out one particular case that you separated the fraud from the truth, which is it? Probably the Hitler diaries. Um, the Hitler diaries uh, were accepted. Um, there were 10 or 12 uh, so-called experts who had authenticated them. Mm. Um, they, uh, Stern magazine had invested more than $5 million in cash. Um, outright payment for the diaries. Um, Newsweek was negotiating English language, American uh, English language rights. Murdoch was negotiating uh, for British rights. Um, there were millions and millions of dollars uh, being paid, not, I wouldn't say at stake. I was brought in by the owner of Newsweek who wanted her own independent person to look over the whole situation. And what was significant was how far this fraud had gotten. Um, all the people who authenticated it, um, either they didn't really know anything about handwriting or about frauds, they knew about history, but everyone got so caught up um, in the momentum of the fraud uh, and the, the pressure to come up with answers. Um, it, was, it absolutely amazed me. Um, and in each of these cases, I was completely amazed at the way the media people did not verify the experts that they hired. Um, I mean, fine, they could get somebody to say Jack the Ripper was real, um, and there were half a dozen people in England who did that. Uh, and there were twists to quite a few of, of the reports that they issued. But yet people wanted to believe. Uh, it, they, it was the competition. It was the money. Um, in a sense, the glory. 
I, I was just blown away uh, at how careless everybody was. This, at, um, with Jack the Ripper, I asked uh, to have a meeting with all the people at Warner Books who had, were involved in it, and, and maybe a dozen people around the table. And I said, who are the people who fact-checked the Jack the Ripper diary? And nobody raised their hand. And I said, don't tell me this was too good to fact check. And I got an answer to that, a serious answer as to how many books had been pre-ordered. So I, the, the whole concept of how easy it was to fool people in journalism uh, was a great concern. Do you think it's, and, and you're brought in to throw cold water, I guess, over all this, but we want the Hitler diaries, not just for commercial reasons, not just because we're publishing them or, or, or documents from Jack the Ripper. We want to know what Hitler really thought. So for many people, there was probably a degree of disappointment when you revealed that this was a fraud. I think that frequently is true. I would have been really interested if they had been real. The, the worst thing with Hitler um, was that various historians all said it was genuine. And I had asked them to tell me what was in the Hitler diaries that did not appear anyplace else. But nobody took the time to do that. Everything in the Hitler diaries was based on one book only. And when that book didn't have anything for a period of time, there were no entries in the Hitler diaries. I argued at the beginning, this could go either way. Nobody really knew that Hitler didn't write diaries. And I had debates on German radio uh, when people say, well, I was with him all the time and he couldn't have done it. And I said, well, you really, you took a bath with him? You know, maybe you, you just couldn't make these blanket statements when the diaries actually existed and forensics would answer a great deal of it. So I, I kept an open mind. I was not someone who came down. I really have no stake in this. Um, I don't want something to be genuine or not genuine. I wrote about the only case where I wanted it to be genuine, which were Elvis Presley manuscripts. And I was enormously disappointed when I could prove that was a hoax because I, that's what I grew up with, Elvis Presley and these songs. And I thought it was terrific if I was holding the real thing. Yeah, now I know um, if I'm going to do a, a Hitler fake, I'm going to call it My Bath with Hitler. That's right. Or maybe My Bath with Adolf. Um, or the sauna with, and, and make sure you have water stains. Yeah, I'm always, I'm good at faking water stains, um, Ken. So I'm, I'm sure you've seen this movie by Orson Welles, a wonderful movie called F for Fake, in which Wells dramatizes and perhaps idealizes, idealizes the, the, the act of faking. Are you, I mean, you're in the business in some senses of exposing fakers, but you're also impressed with them, with their creativity, their artistry. I am. I think that the, the fakers are generally much smarter than the victims. Hmm. Um, for, they, they've generally thought out um, what the weak points are going to be with the victim. You know, will it, it be money? Uh, what do they need to play to? Um, hoaxes work best if you know the psychology of, of the victim and, and then you reinforce what the victim wants to believe. 
There are other hoaxes in, in wartime um, misleading Hitler as to where the, the invasion would be, uh, that it would not be uh, in Normandy. And uh, they knew that, that Hitler thought it would be Pas de Calais, which is the shortest distance between England and France. So they set up the whole fraud. Uh, to play to what they and knew. That's espionage, isn't it, Ken? Well, I mean, it's, it's a fraud. I mean, they, they had fake airplanes. They had mm. fake radio broadcasts. They had Patton's army, which didn't exist, um, except that it appeared to exist. So it is espionage, but it's still faking. You probably, uh, an alternative career potentially for you would have been in the CIA or in the Secret Service, uh, in um, in FFA. Just to comment on that, in my book, I um, I illustrated a letter from Bill Colby when he was the head of the CIA, a handwritten letter saying he really was sorry they failed to uh, have me in their business. I would have been really good at it. I'm not sure whether that was the faking or detecting part that he was talking about. Well, they're sort of intimately bound up with one another you might have also been a good literary creation i'm sure people have borrowed from your character for books for for novels uh in the wells um movie he he um he, he idealizes um a certain faker is there one faker in particular uh, ken who particularly impressed you I don't. I haven't thought of that. Um, I think there have been art forgers who have done a, a terrific job. Um, when and there's a fine line in my mind when enough people are convinced that a painting uh, has all the artistic merit uh, and it's done by someone else. It's not done by the name person but everybody enjoys the painting. They're, it's it's not by the person represented, uh, but it, it's created the reaction that that person created with their paintings. I think that that shows uh, perhaps a lot about the, the viewers, the, the museum people uh, who've um, purchased it or have declared it to be genuine. Last weekend, I was in London at the Kenwood Museum, a couple of masterpieces they have there, Rembrandt's self-portrait and a wonderful Vermeer. And of course, there's endless controversy over whether or not these particular paintings, but many other paintings are real or not. Does it really matter when it comes to faking a Vermeer or a Rembrandt? If you get 99.9% .9 of the way there, so what? People like looking at the thing. It's a masterpiece, whether it's real or not, Ken. Well, that's what I'm arguing here, that that I think that uh, it's not clear cut. Um, it's it's not an opinion by someone where it really matters. It's, it's the effect um, that the painting has on people. And I don't think you could successfully fake a Vermeer. Um, the... Um, there, there was the, the Dutch uh, forger um, who, at the end of the war, uh, was accused of collaborating because he sold a Vermeer to Hermann Goering. Uh, 
Mm, I remember that story. And it's a great story because he said, well, it was a fake. I didn't sell him um, an actual <laughs> Vermeer. And in court, he had to duplicate what he had done, uh, which he did. Um, so he didn't get a death sentence, which he was going to get uh, for having sold a masterpiece. I found that that whole, I, I mean, I like the story, but then when I saw his paintings, um, I couldn't believe somebody thought that they were real Vermeers. I, I don't know what was the, I, I like Vermeer. Um, I went to Amsterdam um, to see the Vermeer exhibition. In yeah, Rome. I wish I'd done that. That was last year or earlier this year, wasn't it? Yeah, you had to you had to get tickets within yeah. a few days, and uh, uh, and I jumped right on it. Uh, I, I bet that fakers are very good. Also, they could have made great careers as lawyers, or certainly uh, lawyers um, in court. Can how many fakes are out there? I mean, you're you're an exposer of fakes. You're a safeguarder. You're Mister Safeguarder of history. But in your sense, are, are there a lot of fakes in museums that we certainly don't know about now and we perhaps will never know about? We think we're looking at the real thing and we're not. Oh, I, I'm, that must be the case. And there must have been uh, archival um, uh, manuscripts that, that are faked and that books were written, say, in 1920 or 1930 before forensics really came into it. So there could be things in history, there must be, um, that um, we all believe, because every book has just copied the other book, um, that they were true. Not, not enormous things, uh, but things that other, other decisions get based on. Um, there must be uh, a lot of them. I've seen just in, in current um, events, some situations where I've made statements um, that there's just as much logic um, that that the situation is not what it represents itself to be. Um, the I mean, when you if you take World War II, um, yeah. propaganda, um, it, it's a book that that. I probably will write in, the, in a year or two years from now on the propaganda that was done by Britain that appeared to originate in Germany. And it was so cleverly done, so well done, um, that people in Germany just believed it was the German government uh, issuing these mm, news. We, we Brits can are very good at making things up. It's our it national speciality. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, what I don't want to do is make it too entertaining. Yeah. Um, well, it is entertaining. I mean, it can be it fun, when, especially in retrospect. We're speaking with Kenneth L. W., not L. I was going to fake you, Ken. Uh, Kenneth W. Rendell, author of Safeguarding History. Wonderful uh, stories, Ken, about your life and, and your sense of fakes and, and, and authenticity. I just want to remind everyone that this show is brought to you by Liberties, another excellent publication. Going to run a short ad and then we'll be back with Ken Rendell to talk more fakes and authenticity in our contemporary age. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. 
Liberty's it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberty's is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Kenneth W. Rendell, author of Safeguarding History, Trailblazing Adventures Inside the Worlds of Collecting and for Forging History. Ken, you mentioned uh, the great Winston Churchill just before the break, uh, or certainly British policy in the Second World War. Uh, you're a specialist in uh, Churchill memorabilia. We've done a number of shows on Churchill, particularly revisionist shows, rethinking Winston Churchill. He was in some ways a great man, and in other ways he was a less great man, especially in his attitude to people of darker skin. Um, how does this rethinking of individuals, people like Churchill, change their change the business of memorabilia does it reduce or heighten their price if they become more controversial i think if they become more legitimately controversial that they really were not the great person that think people think they were uh it would lower their value um what bothers me about a lot of revisionist history is it is that the situation is looked at with the standards of today in a world in which the general standards were totally different than they are today. And you have to go back into someone's lifetime uh, and see the, the uh, social uh, values, the social norms, um, and evaluate a person that way. Um, and I mean, it's wonderful to say that you know, why didn't Germans uh, speak out against Hitler? They did, and they were dead a week later, or they were in a concentration camp. Um, there were, a, the situation, um, I always hear people say, well, if I, if I were in that situation, I would have done this or I would have done that. And the reality is, no, they wouldn't. They wouldn't have been brought up to the standards of today. They were brought up to the standards at the time. And it takes exceptional people to go against the grain. Uh, Churchill, I think, is his most important quality was that he did go against the grain in the 1930s when uh, no one would want to consider that there could be another war. The Great War, World War I, was so horrible, people couldn't conceive that anybody would want to start another war. Now, you could criticize Churchill in terms of, well, why was he able to conceive of someone starting a war? He called it his wilderness years in the 1930s, in which he was trying to get the, the British government to realize what Hitler was doing. And he was doing it, obviously. I did a book on anti-Semitism and the people bringing up about uh, well, the United States and Britain didn't condemn Germany. And, but then if you looked at the anti-Semitism in the United States and Britain, and it was on the same level as it was prior to 1933 in the Nuremberg Laws, you understood why the U.S. and Britain weren't condemning Hitler. They were doing it. 
Um, Anti-Semitism was everywhere in this country. And, and it was everywhere with British, British Union of Fascists um, in Britain and France. It, it was the norm. It was the accepted um, norm. Um, Churchill was speaking out. He was the, that lone voice. And he had a lot of criticism, just like Charles de Gaulle was in France. De Gaulle was a very unlikable person because he, he prophesied exactly what was going to happen. And it happened exactly as he said. Um, so these are gutsy people who do speak out, and they tend to be the people who are now appreciated uh, for having those views. What's the role of technology in all this, um, Ken? A lot of people originally, when the internet came along, and particularly social media, thought, well, this is the opportunity to be more transparent. Everyone will have a platform to express themselves. Uh, and that was certainly the idea of people like Mark Zuckerberg when he founded Facebook and uh, Jack Dorsey when they founded uh, Twitter. But 15 years later, things seem very different. It seems to be a, the ideal age for fakers where anyone can invent personalities and go on social media. Are we living in an age with social media and the internet generally, which enables lying and fakes and propaganda or, or is it an opportunity to create more transparency and more truth well i'm sure that the the real answer is a combination of both but i think what no one really considered um was the book written in the 1880s the crowd as to how uh people go along with other people you get a few people saying something and and people agree uh, who would never have agreed on their own, but they go with the crowd. And that that's also a phenomenon I've seen with these these hoaxes, uh, forgery hoaxes, that mm. two people say it's genuine, and the third person doesn't really want to buck the trend. And, well, if those two people said it was genuine, I'll say it's genuine. That happened a lot uh, uh, with all of the hoaxes that I've written up here. Um, without getting into whether uh, social media is good or bad, and it, it seems to pretty universally be bad, and people can represent themselves uh, in fake ways. You, you hear a lot about dating apps, and um, people are just creating stories um, that it, it's, gone the other, it's gone the other way. Um, as far as technology is concerned, it's affected the field uh, in the way people do business. But I'm not a technology person. That, um, I'm, I'm no good at it. Um, I have to rely on other people. But the, the lack of people writing letters, writing handwritten letters, um, certainly will change how history is viewed in the future. And you have, to, just to begin with, you have the question of, of a typewritten letter or manuscript. Did the person, person actually sign it? Or was it done by machine? And there are all kinds of machines that sign with a pen. So from a forensic standpoint, everything is correct. Someone's applied um, a signature uh, to things. And in the case of a president, you might have a hundred different variations on the signature. So it's not like you hold them up to the light and it's all the same signature. 
there are lots of different ones. So I think it's going to be hard to know um, in the future what's real. Yeah, as we're speaking, Ken, I just got an email from someone about something called AI's creative renaissance AI, of course, being artificial intelligence. Um, is that a contradiction in terms? AI's creative renaissance? Might AI actually be a boon for guys like yourself who are in the business of safeguarding history? Suddenly, all machines, we can employ machines to fake history. I don't know. I, I can't give you a good enough answer. Um, I, I really don't know. One of the most important things for me is to know what I don't know. And and I, I listen to programs and uh, pay attention to AI issues, but I don't know where it's leading to. Um, it's leading to a lot of danger, and there can be good, uh, as there can be in, with a lot of things. But the, um, the good people in civilization forget that there are a lot of bad people. And the... Um, the art world gets fooled by a lot of, of forgers and hoaxers because they don't think in those terms themselves. They don't protect themselves. Um, I was in London last week and a friend of mine uh, was talking about a situation where a fire engine um, was stopped um, by guards near Buckingham Palace and how terrible it was they didn't let the fire engine through because people may have burned to death. And I said, but how do you know it was really firemen? Did they look at their IDs? You know, maybe the firemen are in the firehouse uh, all tied up and terrorists took over. And he said, how can you think that way? And I said, well, in my field, I have to doubt things and I have to um, think that everything isn't what it appears to be. Um, and I think the art world is particularly vulnerable um, to people faking things and that there are bad people in the world.